Well, I've certainly met many interesting people in my lifetime, and and uh, in the top ten is Manny Santiana. You know, he just grew up in Pennsylvania, a little town near Scranton, PA, and uh, he's actually a, a a relative of George Santiana, the famous historian, who said that uh, if you do not learn from the past, you are condemned to repeat it, something like that. Grew up uh, just a poor kid with a dad who was a truck driver, mom who was a seamstress, but uh, he was just determined to go to college and make something good of his life. So after college, he ended up, his first job was at State Street Bank, and uh, it ended up uh, working actually was a salesman for IBM. That was his first uh, big job. And he's been very successful in life and uh, ended up with Credit Suisse and uh, the head of sales at NASDAQ. And he's had a very brilliant career. But why is he on this show? He was on this show because he went to Vietnam. <laughs> he was like one of the first tourists to Vietnam. And he runs into this kid who's got a bunch of dog tags. So uh, I'm going to let him tell the story, and uh, but these dog tags uh, ended up starting this chain of events involving all kinds of people. <laughs> ready, ready, Manny. At this time, you can speak. Okay, wonderful, Janet. Thank you for the invite to be on your uh, global podcast. Really appreciate that. It's a rare opportunity to get to tell the story. I just think it's a very unique story. I, I like to think of it as um, uh, the serendipity of divine intervention because uh, the dog tag find back in 1998, uh, not only did it give me an opportunity to give uh, family recipients uh, an element of closure, uh, but it also um, uh, serendipitously helped my uh, career on Wall Street and accelerate it, which I'll get into a little bit later, but I just thought it was very unique that, um, you know, my uh, quiet obligation of identifying the dog tags, finding them, you know, just by chance, I call it serendipity, you know, out there. And then uh, uh, through, through a sequence of events allowed me to uh, give them back. So anyway, but I'll, I'll tell you the story and, um, and how it uh, finally wound up uh, affecting my Wall Street career. So uh, anyway, so back in 1998, uh, you know, after Vietnam got closed down after the war that you served in, it, uh, you know, it was like, I think like 23 years later, they opened it up in 1998. I guess Vietnam closed in 75 and then 1998, they uh, opened it back up. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I grew up in 1955. And so just to kind of give you the psychological impact and where my motivation came from to go over there was that as a kid, you know, you had all these things going on of, uh, I call it psychological angst and anxiety. You know, it was like, uh, it all started with uh, the, the potential of the nuclear bomb, you know, communism. Uh, it was, uh, you know, JFK was a Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, when you're a kid. And then finally, JFK, you know, gets blown away and, you know, passes away. And that created more anxiety. And then, the, you know, the whole hippie generation, the drug culture, the Vietnam is raging, you know, from, you know, from the 60s. Well, you know, we were there since 1957, I believe, with our, you know, with our with our troops. But, it, you know, right through 1975. So it was a long saga of 20 years and you grew up with that in your mind and then you know seeing seeing people you know obviously getting drafted over the tv screen so all this thing adds up when you're a young kid and and it uh and it's and it's uh you know there's you know music about revolutions with the beatles and the rolling stones etc and so this whole thing plays on your psyche so that was the backdrop when i was a young kid and then i signed up for my draft card when i'm 18 that was in 1973 and then 75 the war is over you didn't have to serve and you went on and you lived your uh, your life. 
And so um, I started off as an IBM salesman selling to the Navy, uh, you know, uh, computer systems uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, the Navy War College. And then um, uh, when I turned 35, I, uh, I segue, I, I call it a portable transferable skill set. I took my marketing sales and distribution skills and went to work in uh, Boston for State Street Bank and Fidelity Investments. And I began my, began my uh, I'll call it Wall Street career. So uh, anyway, during that time, the opportunity came up that they're allowing U.S. citizens to uh, return to Vietnam after all these years in 1998. So that was my big moment to actually go see it and satisfy all this psychological angst I had and kind of like uh, check out where guys like you actually really served and went through this trauma, I call it, of, um, you know, defeating the whole communist regime and, uh, you know, and all the death and destruction that went on for over 20 some odd years in my mind. So, um, you know, being a wrestler, I like to win right out of the gate. You know, and I'm like, how's it go on for 20 years? The guys that went over there and kept, you know, you know, bidding the U.S. government's, uh, you know, request to serve, you know, have big fucking balls. Excuse me. So anyway, so, you know, and I, and I just honored them so much. I wanted to go see it for myself. So in 1998, I go over there. And, uh, and basically, I had three pods. I was there for three weeks. It was Saigon, uh, Quezon, and then Hanoi. That was, that's basically the, the quick dissection, you know, with the Quang Tree province in the middle, you know, around Quezon. So anyway, so I fly into Saigon and, um, you know, go through the Coochie tunnels, that, that kind of thing. And then I segue my way on Highway 1. I went all the way from Quang Tree, and I went 60 miles west into the jungle onto the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And I was on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and I had a translator with me. I see this little kid in there with a little with a little dog tag around his neck, and I never forget. It said uh, Robinson was the uh, soldier's name, and uh, the little kid sitting there, and his mother is all, like all hashed out with a hash pipe, all black and teeth, zoned out of her mind. And the guy translates to her. He would like to pay you five dollars for the uh, for the for the for the uh, dog tag, and that was the very first dog tag I met or found. And that was just very serendipitous just to be on the trail, hiking through the trail with this guy, you know, through Quezon, where all got bombed out. And now it's all coffee fields. But uh, she gave it to me for five bucks. And then I continued on to the coffee fields and I ran into another gentleman who uh, created a cottage industry of taking out all the bombs out of the ground in Quezon through all the carpet bombing and all the bombs. He made a cottage industry out of basically extracting the metal out of uh out of the ground and selling it to somebody else, a Hanoi. So it was a little cottage industry. But in that process, he would find uh, paraphernalia of the American soldiers. And it basically, it came out to be an ammo box full of 106 dog tags and a stack of love letters. And um, uh, so anyway, so um, over the years, I was able to give the love letters, uh, you know, back uh, ironically, in Whittier, California was where they were from, which is exactly where Nixon was from, you know, so I returned those over time. And then but the dog tags were very, very uh, crazy, crazy story with a lot of touch points about how they got back to people. So anyway, so I'm in Quezon and uh, I take the dog tags they are in my backpack. And the next day is the 4th of July in Hanoi. So that was like on July 3rd. I go to Hanoi on July 4th. And I decided to tour around the city of Hanoi. You know, my dog tags are all stowed away. And, you know, this is how bizarre it is. I find my way. I go to see Uncle Ho, 
you know, who's laid out stone cold, laying in a mausoleum, right? You have to go in there with a big, heavy coat because it's so cold in there, but they have him completely preserved. So I see his body. I said, okay, here's the number one commie in Vietnam, right? And then boom, I go out of there and I'm walking down the street and who do I see? And I, and I, and I go into John McCain's cell. So now I'm in the Les Maison, you know, which is uh, Hanoi Hilton. I wound up in John McCain's cell. They told me not to photograph it, but I did photograph the whole thing. And on the wall, I found three flyers, a guy by the, or four flyers. I can't remember the fourth guy's name, but they were Alvarez, John McCain, and Doug Peterson. Their little micro pictures are on the wall that they shared. And so after that experience of being a John McCain cell, I left and I was walking down the street and I heard this little ruckus going on at sort of a stoic building. And there's this silver haired gentleman out there. And I'm like, why do I recognize that guy? You know, and I'm, and all of a sudden he's standing out there with his lovely wife and they're inviting people to come in. I didn't realize it was the American embassy, 4th of July party. First time there was a 4th of July party in Vietnam. And who is the guy inviting? It's the guy I just saw on the wall in John McCain's cell. It was Doug Peterson. He became the first ambassador to the United States, right? And in all my enthusiasm, I'm telling him I found these dog tags. He was kind of excited, but he couldn't focus on it because of all the events going on. So I just thought that that was very serendipitous for me to, you know, go through the sequence of events, find the dog tags, go into, you know, uh, eventually Hanoi, from Quezon to Hanoi, walk in Uncle Ho's place, find, uh, be in John McCain's cell, see his picture, find out 33 years later, he's actually having the first 4th of July party ever. And he acknowledged the dog tags and, and, and uh, you know, and he sort of said, you know, we have programs basically to uh, help identify these things. So anyway, I leave Vietnam, I get them out of the country. I actually smuggled them. I remember wrapping them up, uh, the dog tags, on the bottom of my shoes. And at the long, at the other time, I had a little, uh, you know, I, it was, uh, I had my wife at the time. She uh, had a hair dryer. So I put all the dog tags around different objects and wrapped them up with electrical tape. And I can remember when they were going through the core of them, were going through the, uh, uh, I'll call it the, uh, what do you call those? The, the machine that was inspecting your belongings at the airport, right? And so the Vietnamese guy is looking down, and all of a sudden, as they were going through, I remember at that very moment, I banged on the machine all so loud that it basically distracted him. He picked his head up, and all the dog tags went through. That was in the days where you couldn't recall the image. The technology wasn't there. It just went through, and that was it. So I was so thrilled. They got they went through without any um, any conflicts, so to speak. So then I get over, uh, I'm back in Boston now, and um, I get invited to a uh, relative's uh, wedding down in Washington, D.C., and I was a little bit early for the wedding, and I said, let's go in and get some lunch, and there's this very vacant lounge, and uh, this lounge was completely empty, except for one elder gentleman in it who I didn't recognize, and uh, he got up and he walked away from his table, and as he walked by me, he brushed by me, and the Maynard Egos do you realize who that is? I said, I have no idea. He goes, that's Bob McNamara. And I said, Bob McNamara, wait a second. That's the guy that started the Vietnam War <laughs> along with Westburn. Am I right about that? Yeah. He was the key guy, right? Am I right about that, Jen? Yeah. Or, yeah, so Bob McNamara is in there by himself having a coffee, a Coke, and a hamburger. And of course, there's nobody in this expansive place. You've probably been in the Ebbett Lounge before. It's pretty large. And there's one guy in it. And I'm the next guy in there with my wife at the time. And we... And I said, can you please sit me next to him? Now, who wants somebody else to sit next to him when you have such a vacant place? The poor guy probably wanted to be left alone. But I walked over to him. 
And I introduced myself and I said, Mr. McNamara, I'm sorry to disturb you. I said, but do you mind if I sit down and tell you my quick Vietnam story? And I think he almost fell out of his chair when I told him I had 106 dog tags because he had written such an expansive volumes of information about his apology to the American public, I think, in volumes of, uh, of his book. Am I correct about that, too? Would you happen to know that? That's correct. That's correct. So anyway, so I think it kind of it was a little bit disruptive for him, although he was quite the gentleman and he did give me some light, not heat. And the light was he said, listen, Manny, he goes, you got these dog tags, you know, and, uh, you know, you feel like you got this quiet obligation to return them. He goes, we have a 20 million dollar program per year to help return these dog tags to help ease the psyche of the American families. I said, great. He goes, please contact the Pentagon. So he politely got up and left after about five minutes, you know, after kind of giving me his uh, maybe 10 minutes, you know, his uh, his suggestions and the impact that I created. So that was the first thing. I thought it was very unusual after just finding dog tags in Vietnam that you would actually run into Bob McNamara. I mean, what is the probability of that? I think it's almost zero. You know, I mean, I don't know what the probability of that is, but it's I think it's I think it's low. So um you know, I don't know why I didn't meet him before, but I met him that day, you know, having in hand the dog tags. So I put together a summary list of name, rank, serial number, blood type, whatever, and I email it to the Pentagon. The Pentagon calls me back and they acknowledge uh, that every one of the dog tags were valid. And they were interested in one in particular, and that was Harry Beckwith Jr. And they wanted all the dog tags. And I said, I'm happy to work with you on giving you the dog tags back, but I would like to... Uh, at least participate in, uh, you know, maybe shaking the hand of the families or at least meeting them. And the Pentagon was very adamant and the re it was a resounding, no, you will not be doing that. <laughs> so I said, okay. Uh, I said, I'm going to think about it. I get back to you. And they called again. I said, the answer is no. They called the third time. I said, no. I said, listen, if you let me participate, I'm happy to uh, do it. And then the fourth time they said, look, we really want Harry Beckwith Jr.'s uh, dog tag. And he wound up being the only guy that was dead. All the other ones came back alive, you know, all the other names. And Be Harry Beckwith was on your honorable wall then in D.C. I forget what panel number he's on, but he's there. I double-checked it when I went down. And uh, so sure enough, um, you know, Harry Beckwith Jr., why the Pentagon was so adamant about it, he was a Navy Star recipient. He was on his third tour. I didn't know this until I found his mother because the Pentagon wouldn't help me. So I actually, after a year and a half, I got frustrated, couldn't find uh, the family and why Harry was so important. But I hired a private investigator out of Tampa, Florida, over the internet, paid him 700 bucks, and boom, he had Harry Beckwith's mother in Butler, Missouri, on the telephone with me <laughs> within 15 minutes of hiring him. It was like unbelievable. So um, so anyway, the um, uh, you know, I'm sure he was perhaps one of these black ops investigators had access to real databases where people are. He got me to Harry's mother. I fly out to Butler, Missouri. She tells me the story of her son. I give her the dog tag. And her son was a Navy star recipient. He was on his third tour. He got his arm blown off in a tank firefight, saved 25 guys, went to Walter Reed Hospital. Now he's on his fourth tour back in Vietnam, which is amazing. He sees his father, who was also serving there, gives his father a hug. He gets on a UE helicopter with one arm. He's now an observer flying across a DMZ. As he's going across the DMZ, he gets blown out of the sky by the Viet Cong. The chopper goes down. The, the, the pilot survives. He takes out Harry's body. He puts it on the recovery helicopter. Now the recovery helicopter is taking off. 
And in that process, it was taking enemy fire by the Viet Cong. The chopper banks away from the enemy fire, and Harry Beckwith's body falls to the jungle floor, and I find his dog tags 23 years later. And uh, that's how it started with the Pentagon. And so as a result of all that, finding the mother and doing the whole thing, I, uh, I, I still didn't find the rest of it. And I happened to be sitting in a cigar bar in uh, New York City. And uh, it's actually where you and I met, the Grand Havana Room. And there was um, uh, uh, the name of the other cigar bar. I'm forgetting it all of a sudden. Um, uh, oh, geez, I've only been there a million times. But anyway, the, part, the point is I'm sitting there. And this old gentleman smoking a cigar, and he was talking about Vietnam. And I said, oh, I have great appreciation for Vietnam and what this country did. And I and I wound up telling him the, the story a little bit quicker than I am right now. But uh, his name was Carl Figliola. And Carl goes, he goes, look, um, appreciate the story. He goes, I want to make an invitation to you. And uh, he goes, uh, I am the lobbyist for Rudy Giuliani. And he goes, and I would love you to come over and get all those dog tags and please play, put them on the table and let's go through the story. And I'm going to invite John McCain's chief of staff, who happened to be a five times square. Rudy was at three times square. And so uh, and he calls me up the next day. And he goes, listen, let me I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm setting up this meeting. But if this is not a true story, he goes, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> OK, so. The point was, it was a true story. I got to know Carl Figlioli. I got to know Rudy Giuliani and um, Tony Carbonetti, who was the chief of staff for uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, brought in uh, John McCain's people. And John McCain's people were so excited about the dog tag find and the whole story. They're completely enamored. They connected me to um, uh, uh, Peter Jennings. And uh, so this is where it gets crazy with Wall Street. So Peter Jennings wanted to do a special on me. He recorded it very much like your podcast right here, but he wanted to uh, put it out to the general public at his discretion. And so I agreed to all that. And so Peter Jennings recorded uh, recorded me and, uh, you know, the whole story. And I didn't hear from them for about a year and a half. And Ju Rudy Giuliani and John McCain said, listen, someday you're going to hear from us. And uh, along with uh, Peter Jennings, and uh, we'll let you know when uh, it, we think it's appropriate. So about a year and a half goes by. Now it's like 2004. So 1998, I find the dog tags. Now it's 2004. All this transpires of the story I just told you serendipitously. You know, and uh, uh, it is now Memorial Day weekend, 2004. It's on a Wednesday. Memorial Day weekend's coming up. It's the beginning of the summer. We're ready to honor the veterans that weekend. And so that's on a Wednesday. Well, on that Wednesday, I appeared... I was revolutionizing uh, Wall Street with electronic trading. You know, the old hand traders and the ones that answered the telephones and ran around the floor with paper in their hand and things like this, you know, is a highly inefficient way, but it was the best thing we had at the time. And I had made a suggestion with a team of people that we uh, automate the process, make it smart, fast, and cheap. So we figured out a way to do it electronically where you would actually hit a button on a computer and trade the world in 42 markets and no people involved. It was sort of like, you know, eBay was electronic. We matched up buyers and sellers very quickly, and it was sub-second. It went from second, you know, millimicro to nanosecond over the course of time, and that's how threatening and powerful it was for the traditional trader. So anyway, on a Wednesday, I wind up in a magazine article with Traders Magazine, uh, ironically, on a jet ski in St. Bart's, saying, here's a guy who lives life on the edge, been to Vietnam, loves a jet ski, boating, all this kind of crazy stuff, high school wrestler, you know, everything, you know, he's very driven. 
And he's got a lot of enthusiasm. He's got a big idea called electronic trading. So what happened was that day, the, the traditional traders wanted to fire me. And they actually ripped up that article and they put it on the floor as the wall of shame. It's the wall of shame. This guy is doing all the crazy things that they weren't used to doing, right? And I'm thinking, well, you got to sell this thing if you want people to engage it, right? So you got to get a little buzz going. So that was the beginning of the buzz. And they wanted no part of it. They wanted to disintermediate me immediately. So my boss said, look, he goes, at Credit Suisse, he goes, look, I think I told you to get along with these guys. You're not getting along. They all want you off the floor. They all want you out the door. And I'm like, okay, so what's the answer? He goes, am I continuing to make money for the firm, electronic trading, or am I out the door? He goes, you're out. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I said, I'm getting fired. He goes, yes. He goes, tomorrow. That was Thursday. Then they go to try to fire me, and they find out that most people in human resources and all the other management chain to get agreement on it are out of town. They all went on holiday for Memorial Day weekend. So they said, we're going to have to fire you on Tuesday next week. I'm like, you're ruining my weekend, man. You're ruining my weekend. And so anyway, Friday comes. I'm going home. I'll never forget it. Going back to Pennsylvania from New York City. And I'm a little bit sad. And all of a sudden, I got a call on the way. And it's from Rudy Giuliani's office and also ABC World News Time. We just want to let you know, we're airing the program tonight of your dog tag uh, thing. So on 7 o'clock, Peter Jennings announces that I am... Uh, I am the person of the week because of the dog tag find many years ago. Crazy Wall Street guy, uh, revolutionary Wall Street guy finds dog tags in Vietnam and spent six, seven years returning them, you know, and tells the whole serendipity story, you know, of all the sequence of events. And then uh, basically I wind up on ABC World's News Tonight with Peter Jennings. I'm at the American Legion, you know, with my father and, you know, they flash his picture up being in World War II as part of the whole thing. And then um, Tuesday comes. And uh, I walk on the floor to get terminated and all the Vietnam vets and all the other veterans from all the other wars stood up on the floor that were traitors, came over, gave me a big hug and says, you're not going anywhere. He goes, and then all of a sudden, the next thing was, we appreciate what you did for the dog tags. And we love the Peter Jennings story. We don't know who your publicist is, is yeah. but I'm like, you know, but uh, your timing couldn't have been better, you know, that uh, it came out. You know, right before we're ready to fire you. And by the way, what's this thing called electronic trading about hitting the button, trading the world? We're going to start using it. And yeah. it was the Vietnam vets and the dog tag fine that saved my job on Wall Street. And I was there for another 12 years. <laughs> Eventually, well, and, that, and that was the end. Of, and that was the serendipity of divine intervention because I think it was very serendipitous. But I have, think God has had something to do with it at the right time, you know, to keep me going for another 12 years and, and doing very well on Wall Street. So that's that's Great my spirit. contribution. All yeah. right. Well, we want to thank you for telling this story. It's long overdue, but the public needs to know about the serendipity nature of the world we live in. And when the good Lord puts something in your way to do, you got to do it.